back to Pastor's Prophecy Hour, your midweek installment of the Greater Life Church podcast. I'm Landon, and I'm here to interview our guest speaker, Styles Bird, who's back to give us another deep dive into the book of Revelation. Styles, what are we going to be talking about in this episode? Yeah, two weeks ago, I talked about the background and historical context of the seven churches. Remember that John wrote this in late first century. And so we have to look at what those cities were experiencing at that time in history. So this week, we're talking about the actual letters to the seven churches. And what's interesting is that the letters were actually addressed to the angels of the seven churches, not the seven churches themselves. So there's a layer there we have to unpack. But also, this is interesting because these are actual, the literal words of Jesus to these seven churches as he dictated these to John for these seven churches. So we're going to unpack the structure of the letters, the attributions of Jesus, how he refers to himself, the warnings to the churches, the rewards for those who conquer, conquer being a central theme in Revelation, and then the universal call for the church to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So that's what we're going to be unpacking this week. Thank you, Styles. Let's get into it. Okay, two weeks ago, I talked for a few minutes on the background and historical context of the seven churches. So that's what we'll be covering tonight, the actual letters to the seven churches. And if you missed that, you can go back to the podcast uh, from two weeks ago and listen to that. It gives some good information that might kind of transport you to late first century um, and what these churches were experiencing in in the world around them. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so before we wrap up the historical background and contextual information, we stopped at the series of sevens in chapter one. So let's start there, and then we'll go immediately to chapter two. We might have some visuals tonight, too. Let me get this turned around. Okay, chapter one. Let's look at verse 12. Then I turned around to see the voice that spoke with me. This is John. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass and if refined, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw, saw him, I fell at his feet uh, as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And rewinding just a bit to 
verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So let's talk about these sevens before we get into the letters because they're relevant. He brings them up, Jesus, again in these letters. Uh, so we see seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven churches, seven angels, and seven stars. In verse 20, we're given clarification that the seven stars in Jesus' right hand are the seven angels of the seven churches. And then we are told that the seven golden lampstands that he's standing in the midst of are the seven churches themselves. Mystery solved on those. The imagery of the seven lampstands harkens back to the golden lampstand of the tabernacle and then the temple. And then in Zechariah 4, which is an apocalyptic book of the Old Testament, it contains similar imagery of a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And we are told that they are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. The angels represented by the seven stars are likely guardian angels that were specifically commissioned or deployed to these churches to guard that respective church. And this is consistent with the testimony of Scripture that we are not alone. There exists a spiritual realm that coexists or coincides with our material existence. And let me just say this, the angels were the actual recipients of John's letters. So these guardian angels were being given mission-critical updates or uh, uh, direction that applied to their deployment. They were expected to combat the spiritual forces driving the churches away from the Lord. The seven spirits of God is mentioned four times in Revelation, and it's, it's worth our time to go through each. We read the first one in chapter 1, verse 4, that says, uh, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The next one is chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then chapter 4, verse 5. And from the throne proceeded, proceeded, sorry, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then lastly, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. If we walk backward from those, the seven spirits are pictured with the lamb, Jesus, in chapter 5, when he appeared between the throne and the four living creatures as the conqueror the one worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. The reference also describes the seven spirits as the seven eyes, which takes us back to the imagery in Zechariah 4. The reference in chapter 4 presents the seven spirits as the seven burning torches before the throne. And then chapter 3 is the greeting to the church in Sardis, where we see the seven spirits and the seven stars attributed to Jesus. Lastly, the first reference in chapter 1 includes the seven spirits in the center of John's Trinitarian greeting. The Father is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Then Jesus is mentioned by name at the end. 
And between that, the Father and Jesus, is the mention of the seven spirits. This leads us to the conclusion that the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Seven being the number of completion or perfection or wholeness. We know that the seven spirits are not the seven stars, the angels, because they were distinct in that chapter 3 reference. So we also conclude this because the two references mentioning God's throne place the seven spirits or the Holy Spirit squarely in the midst. Okay, the structure of the seven letters. The first characteristic to know about these letters is that every letter is dictated to John by Jesus. So these are literally, in every sense of the term, the words of God to these churches. It's somewhat a mystery why these churches were chosen, as opposed to some we read about elsewhere in the New Testament, like Colossae or, or Corinth, Galatia. It is possible they were chosen because of their location along uh, the central Roman roads. And in fact, I don't know if we have that map of the churches laid out. Th thank you, perfect. Uh, the, the other reason that we may have these churches as opposed to the ones in the New Testament is remember that this was most likely written in the late first century, around mid-95 uh, AD. So this would have been 35 to 40 years beyond the letters that Paul wrote and Peter wrote and even John, his first, second, third John, those letters that would have been to those kind of traditional churches that I'm talking about. So not that those churches had shut down and had closed, but the church is moving, it's progressing, it's growing. Now it's uh, moved to the Asian province of Rome. But you can see that it, they are listed in the Bible in geographical order, starting with Ephesus in the south, and then moving to uh, Smyrna north, then to Pergamos, and then you go to Thyatira to the uh, northeast, south again to Sardis, southeast to Philadelphia, and then to Laodicea. So you can see that the path of a letter courier right there on the map. If this is one letter, perhaps it's seven letters, two seven churches, but if it's, a one, if it's one letter, then that courier has a good opportunity to hit Ephesus and then just keep going around to the other six churches. The structure of each letter generally falls into seven sections. The first is the address or the attribution of the letter. The second is the acknowledgement of works. The third is a grievance. The fourth is an admonition or exhortation. The fifth is a warning and a consequence of disobedience. And then the sixth is a universal call to listen. And the last, the seventh, is a reward or promise for obedience. Leave that there just for a minute and you can go back and forth if you need it. I see some people writing it down. I said generally because there are two churches that have only strengths and there are two churches that have only weaknesses. And then in some of the letters, these, these sections are out of order. In, in particular, that universal call to listen as we get toward the latter churches is at the end instead of uh, between the warning and the reward. Okay, so I think we're ready to read our letters. Starting in chapter two, verse one, we'll start with Ephesus. To the angel 
of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, there, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give... I will give to, to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the empire behind Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch of Syria. It was the center for commerce as three trade routes met at Ephesus. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of the goddess Artemis or Diana. She was the goddess of hunting and fertility. The temple, along with three imperial temples, we talked about that two weeks ago, that the imperial cult worship was really on the rise in the, in the last generation here. They had a temple to the current emperor, Domitian, and these temples were the lifeblood of Ephesus. So it's not a surprise then that demonism, the occult, witchcraft, and sorcery thrived in Ephesus. In fact, we see evidence of this about 40 years prior in Paul's journeys. In Acts 19, we read about an ex extraordinary miracles God was performing through Paul. Uh, he, there were handkerchiefs and uh, aprons that had touched his skin that were healing people and casting out demons if they just touched the handkerchief or the uh, apron. So a team of Jewish non-Messianic, meaning they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, exorcists called the sons of Sceva observed this and thought they would get in on the action. They tried to cast out a demon by invoking the Jesus whom Paul preached. The demon responded saying, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And proceeded to beat them, strip them naked, and they ran off humiliated. After these things, these events, Many in Ephesus who believed in Jesus came and confessed their sins of sorcery and witchcraft, and they had a good old-fashioned book burning of all their magic books, the value of which reached 50,000 pieces of silver. So as you can imagine, this led to an uproar in the city from those who profited and participated in the occult. The enemy, Satan, spun the city into chaos, and many gathered in the theater, some not, e not even knowing why. This is that mob mentality. And for about two straight hours chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Very heavy was the demonic influence in Ephesus, suffocating to the church at times. As an aside, I want to point out that the demonic spirit and influence didn't just vanish into thin air. Satan is spinning the same evil and chaos in our world today. It mostly hides in the shadows of humanity, but when evil feels threatened, 
as it did in Ephesus, and as it will near the end of all things, the darkness will come into the light for all to see. As an example here, if we are getting near the end of all things, or just as an example of when we get there, look at what's happening to Disney right now. The enemy feels threatened and is forced to come into the light for all to see their true colors. Unfortunately, for the Ephesian church, this was not their problem, their only problem. They were also infested with false teachers. And Paul actually prophesied about this 40, 40 years prior also. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, uh, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn, uh, warn every night and day with my tears. So this was the condition of the Ephesian church that received John's letter. The address that Jesus leads with is, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is in charge. He is in control. He is on the throne, and he oversees the seven stars and is present among the seven churches. Then we get into the acknowledgement of works, verses two through three. The Ephesians are commended for their good works uh, in the midst of the surrounding evil. They did well not bearing with or tolerating evil. As we are told in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Beyond that, they are commended for testing and rejecting the false teachers. Their testing likely followed the formula we, fi we find in 1 John 4. Uh, does anybody know how to test a false teacher? What's the, what's the question you put to them? Right. It, the, the answer was, is Jesus God? So 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So uh, I was uh, talking with Amber about this the other day, that this, that actual test always puzzled me, until recently, actually, because I thought, Surely the test is, did Jesus raise from the dead? It's got to be it, did Jesus raise from the dead? But that's not the test. The test is, did Jesus come in the flesh? Because what that is asking and answering is, did God wrap on flesh and live among us? Is Jesus God? That's the question. That's the, the root question. Did God come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and live among us? To be clear, these were true false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, those, those that were intentionally trying to deceive Christians. These false teachers are not sincere Christians that misinterpret Scripture from a place of ignorance. There are those out there, and the Holy Spirit will guide them gently. But these teachers were a tool of Satan, and this tool is still in use today. For the grievance... The Ephesians had abandoned or lost the love that characterized the church at its inception, love for God and love for each other. 
This was likely caused by the alert and defensive stance the church has sustained over years against the false teachers. The admonition or exhortation from Jesus was to return to the works they did at first. And it communicates a few things to us. They had departed a previous state where they were in right standing with God. They were told to go back, which is the definition of repent. Go back, turn back. It's a fashionable thing in in church life to hear or to say that God is doing a new thing, which happens, Scripture supports it, and God does that. But most often, God just desires consistency from us, not radical sacrifice, the kind of sacrifice that glorifies us more than him, simple, consistent obedience. And then the third thing are works. The works are reflective of faith and love. This takes us back to the argument we find in James. Works cannot save us, but faith without works, which is genuine works of righteousness and love, is not genuine faith. So out Our works are the product or the outcome of our faith. So if there is no works, there is no faith. They are also commended for their rejection of the work of the Nicolaitans. This group we see mentioned a couple more times were likely an early iteration of the Gnostics, a group that preaches salvation by possession of secret knowledge. Gnosis in Greek is that term. Secret societies throughout history have claimed the same privilege of information, and we see here that God hates these works. Secrets and secret societies have no place in Christianity or God's kingdom. Here's the warning. The consequence of inaction was having their lampstand removed. The seriousness of this consequence is emphasized by the bookend warnings from Jesus. If not, and then at the end, unless you repent. The removal of their lampstand could be be a reference to the removal of their significance or their witness or their influence, resulting in a dead church, or it could be more severe, being labeled as an apostate church, a synagogue of Satan, which we'll see in a little bit. Then you have a call to listen. And lastly, the reward for obedience. The Greek term used uh, here for conquer is found 15 times in Revelation. That is the theme of Revelation, conquering, overcoming, enduring. The reward for conquering is access to the tree of life, which Adam and Eve were banished from so long ago. So this signifies a lifting of the curse. The Ephesian problem was faith without works. They were forced to take a hard line doctrinally to combat false teachers and teachings that they lost sight of the works of the church, which is loving God and loving others. Consider some mainline denominations that became so focused on doctrine and compliance that the lifeblood of the church slowly faded. There has to be a balance. Okay, Smyrna, verse 8, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. But you are rich, and I know that the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. In Jesus' attribution, he calls himself the first and the last. That's a paraphrase of the Alpha and the Omega, which is also used in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 22, verse 13, in his benediction. This may also be a nod to the city, Smyrna, as it was called the first in Asia. The second attribution is of particular significance to Smyrna because uh, as they will soon pass through the fires of persecution, but that would not be their end. The acknowledgement of works, tribulation, poverty, and slander. These are the compliments, the commendations from Jesus to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is one of only two churches that have no weaknesses. Let's be honest. A church marked by slander, mired by affliction, with barely enough money to keep the doors open, would not be considered a thriving church today. But to Smyrna's good news Jesus was the judge, not man. The word for slander here comes from the Greek term uh, for blaspheme. The blasphemy in Smyrna came from unbelieving Jews who were claiming to be part of the church. That is not unlike Mormons who recently changed what they wanted to be called from Mormons or LDS to Christians. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing his work to their heresy. They were poor in coin, but rich in spirit. Many in the church likely lost their jobs for refusing to participate in the imperial cult. Talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that the mark of the beast scenario would have probably resonated with these seven churches because many of these people were probably being isolated, uh, kicked out of their jobs, not allowed to buy and sell and trade if they didn't participate in this wicked culture of cult worship. So this would have, have happened here in Smyrna as well. The grievance, they had none. The admonition, Jesus alerts the church that a fiery trial is coming and will last for 10 days. And for some, it will likely end in death. This 10 days is probably not literal, but a period of suffering. He exhorts them not to be afraid, but that the victor's crown of life awaits their faithfulness. The imprisonment and martyrdom was probably the result of rejecting imperial worship or refusing to renounce Christ. You can go back to Daniel's day when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image and were thrown into the furnace. It's, it's, Satan's playbook is the same, right? The call to listen and then the reward for obedience. Uh, the second death. So for that, let's get a little more context in uh, Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 14. The, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then again in 21, 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns, the, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So in Matthew 28 or Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those or the one that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear him who after the body is dead can send the soul down to hell. This is the second death. And faithful obedience to the church at Smyrna and to us absolves them of the second death. Pergamum in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Let's keep on moving. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was a faithful, my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There they are again, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, we got some neat stuff here in Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of the Asian province of the Roman Empire. It was also the capital of the imperial cult worship, having built the first temple dedicated to Caesar in A.D. 29. Pergamum had temples and shrines to Zeus, Athena, and Dionysus. Because of this demonic influence and presence, the antipathy toward Christians was intense. So here's the attributions to Jesus. The two-edged sword reference shows up a few other times in Scripture. Psalm 149, this is a neat one, describes the high praises of God being in the throats of the godly and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. And then Hebrews 4 is one we... Uh, is, is commonly known. It describes the word of God as being living and active as a sharp two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. At his coming in Revelation 19, his second coming, we read that a sharp sword comes from the mouth of Jesus, which he uses to strike down the nations. The imagery of the sword here and throughout scripture is one of judgment and authority, which is further confirmed by the last battle in Revelation 19. The acknowledgement of works. Pergamum appears to be the center of Satan's kingdom as evidenced by the bookends from Jesus in one verse, verse 13. He says where Satan's throne is and at the, then at the end he says where Satan dwells. This could refer to the temple of Zeus in the city because as we understand it, the, there are demonic entities behind these gods or idols that persist throughout history. Whether or not this temple or imperial temples, temples factor in, Jesus is stating plainly that this is where Satan's home is, in Pergamum. In spite of the enormous demonic presence and pressure on the church, the church is commended for holding fast their faith, not denying Jesus, even under threat of death, as Antipas suffered. Grievance. Pergamum has allowed false teachers Nicolaitans and false teachings, the teaching of Balaam, to sneak in among them. 
Balaam, if you remember, the story's in around Numbers 22, was a Gentile prophet who the Moabite king Balak solicited to prophesy ill toward Israel that was traveling from Egypt to Canaan. Balaam, as a Gentile prophet, a prophet indeed, could only prophesy what the Lord wanted him to prophesy, which was goodness and blessings toward Israel. It stirred up Balak, made him mad, but Balaam said, there's nothing I can do about it. He puts his words in my mouth and I say it. But later on, Balaam went to Balak and gave him some friendly advice and said, hey, use the Moabite women as a sexual stumbling block in front of Israel. And that was very effective for Balak and the the Moabite people. This is what's happening here. The same tactic. The wolves have infiltrated the flock and are trying to lead them into sexual immorality. Here again, we see the mention of the Nicolaitans. This group was likely trying to get the faithful to loosen up, convincing them that it is possible to stay faithful to Christ while also participating in all of the wickedness of culture. Ephesus and Pergamum may have benefited from a pastor swap or at least an an elder's swap. Ephesus enforced a doctrinal hard line, but lacked love and faithfulness, while Pergamum was a model of faithfulness, but had allowed the wolves to sneak in, not guarding the fundamental doctrines of the church. The challenge of every church, and pastors specifically, is knowing those hard line doctrines that must be defended and adhered to. These are called cardinal doctrines. Easy examples are, like we mentioned earlier, the deity of Jesus, his physical death and his physical resurrection, his second coming and salvation by grace alone. An example of a non-cardinal doctrine are the timing of the rapture or the age of the earth. These are non-cardinal doctrines. In our age, there are increasing violations of critical cardinal doctrines such as the growing number of Christians and churches that reject the sanctity of life in favor for pro-abortion policies and politicians. We also see entire denominations, not to mention myriad Christians, affirming homosexuality. The Bible does not mince words when it says that those practicing homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pergamum's negligence to hold the line on core cardinal doctrines placed them in a compromising position. They received no exhortation or admonition. Their warning, Pergamum's call is the same as Ephesus, a call to repent, to turn back or to go back. Ephesus had to return to their love for Jesus. Pergamum had to return to the truth of God's word. Non-compliance would result in Jesus waging war on the heretics with the same weapon he uses in the final battle. Then you have a call to listen and the reward for for obedience. There are two rewards promised here to the conqueror. The hidden manna likely refers to Jesus as the bread of life. However, we could have a literal meaning possible. Jewish tradition holds that the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant from the temple uh, before exile and hid it under, in the cave under Mount Sinai. So it is at least possible that these Pergamum comp- conquerors 
are going to be able to eat the manna that Moses told them to put into the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments. It's at least possible, which would be kind of neat. Some manna hanging out in the Ark of the Covenant and you get to eat it. The white stone here with a new name on it that is only known to the recipient is the second reward and there's a couple possibilities. Uh, In the first century, white stones were used as uh, tickets to exclusive events, clubs, or feasts. It was your ticket to get in. But also, white stones were used to signify an acquittal vote at a trial. Black stones for guilty. And then the new name is likely the new name we will receive in the next life. Thyatira, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into the sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations." He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces as I also have received from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And here's where we see that call to listen flipping from before the reward to after the reward. Thyatira was the least significant city of these seven regarding influence and stature in the region and the empire. But it was a blue-collar working town along the Lycus River. Uh, Lydia, whom Paul met in Philippi along the river, uh, was from Thyatira. Uh, Jesus uses the title Son of God here. It is the only time it's used in Revelation. Apollos, the son of Zeus, was the patron god of Thyatira. So Jesus may be reinforcing who the true Son of God is. His descriptors are his fiery eyes and his burnished bronze feet. Both reveal a militaristic stance and a coming judgment. And Jesus having eyes that see all, even the motives behind actions. Four works are acknowledged for Thyatira, love, faith, service, and patient endurance. The second two may be the outcome of having the first two. In some ways, the first two, love and faith, are a state of being, And the second two are a state of doing, service and patient endurance. Of particular commendation is the extra credit Thyatira has uh, has put in because he says that your latter works are better than your first. And that's the objective of all good churches and pastors, that the church increases in love, in faith, in ministry, in patient endurance. The grievance and the warning are kind of mixed in here together. 
Jesus calls out a specific individual as responsible for poisoning the church. He calls her Jezebel, though this is probably a characterization of her ministry rather than her actual name or identity. Jezebel, if you remember, was the wicked wife of the Israelite king Ahab. Jezebel, Jezebel committed mass murder on the Israelite prophets and attempted uh, Elijah's life a couple of times. Idol worship, in particular, Baal, or the proper pronouncement in Hebrew is Baal, and Asherah thrived under Jezebel un- until many of her prophets were killed after the contest at Mount Carmel. Ultimately, God's fiery judgment found Jezebel. She was in her tower, and one of her servants pushed her out of the tower window. She fell dead on the ground. By the time they reached her body, the only thing left was hands, feet, and skull. Dogs had eaten the rest of her, which is exactly what Elijah prophesied. This Jezebel in Thyatira was a false prophetess, leading believers toward idolatry and sexual sin. She had amassed a following and devoted acolytes, here called children, disciples. Despite her wickedness, the Lord gave her an opportunity to repent, but she refused. So like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, her opportunity to repent had come and gone. She was going to be thrown into her sickbed, and then her acolytes, her children, would be put to death. However, the Lord gives an opportunity to her followers to repent. These would include believers in the church that at times participated in her wickedness or in, or in her evil. These were the backsliders. They were given an opportunity to repent. Jesus concludes his warning by reiterating that he searches the mind and heart. This warning is a warning to all of those who are playing church, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones, as Jesus said to the Pharisees. The admonition is that Jesus now turns his attention to the faithful remnant who do not hold to the teaching of Jezebel. He then mentions the deep things of Satan. Jezebel and other false teachers who sneak in among the flock are of their father, the devil, and use his tactics. It's a poisoning of the well, if you will. It's veiled secrets and suggestions that at first deviate ever so slightly from the truth, but in the end, bite like a serpent and lead to banishment from the garden of God. That is how Satan works. It's not going to be the neon sign. It's the slow fade. In the midst of this deception, Jesus exhorts the faithful to hold fast what you have until I come. He is referring to truth, orthodoxy, which is right teaching. They must hold on to these things to conquer. And then the rewards, the qualifiers for obedience uh, for this reward are conquering and keeping his works until the end. We have enough context here in Revelation to know that the works of Jesus are twofold love of God, love of others, and the second is orthodoxy, producing orthopraxy, right teaching, producing right living. To conquer, the church must persist in God's love and must uphold and enforce right teaching, which manifests in right living. He also will grant him the the morning star. This might have uh, resonated with that first century because as a Roman province, Uh, The Roman legions would often carry Venus, the morning star, on their flags uh, for a victory processional. So Jesus is staking his claim as the true morning star. Sardis in uh, 1 through 6, for sake of time, I'm not going to read these next three churches. Uh, You may have it there that you can reference. 
Uh, but Sardis was 30 to 40 miles southeast of Thyatira and had once been a local military power. It had a uh, fortress uh, on a top of a 1,500-foot cliff that was nearly impenetrable. However, some guy that wasn't doing his job forgot to seal up the gaps in the fortress and al allowed the enemy in in two battles in the 3rd century B.C. and the 6th century, allowed the enemy inside to open the gate from within, and the city was destroyed or the fortress was destroyed. So though their military might had waned, Sardis still held considerable wealth in the region. Jesus emphasized his control over the church by the Holy Spirit and the guarding, angel, the guarding angels. Nothing was outside of his control or his view or his knowledge. Sardis must not deceive themselves and think otherwise. I feel like in this letter, in the grievance, if, if it was a scroll and the lines were spaced out appropriately, it would have stung even more because the first line could have been like, I know your works. And the second line, you have a reputation of life. And they're thinking, yeah, we're doing pretty good. Third line, but you are dead. <laughs> Sardis may have pulled the wool over the eyes of others, but Jesus in possession of the seven spirits and seven stars, the one who searches mind and heart knows Sardis is dead. So he commands the church to wake up turn their attention inward, at least temporarily, to fortify the remnant. He gives this charge because the, their works have been weighed, reviewed, assessed, and they do not meet his standard. Sardis, if they do not repent, do not wake up, there will be severe consequences. Jesus uses strong end times imagery to show the severity of their situation, the thief in the night imagery that we've seen a couple times in Scripture in Thessalonians and then in Peter. There remains a remnant in Sardis, a select few who have not assimilated uh, to the pagan practices that infiltrated the church. These are the hope of the church that can lead the church to repentance and renewal, to, to lead that effort. Jesus moves on to acknowledging and rewarding the few that will lead that charge as the conquerors. They will be clothed in white. The clothing likely means the inclusion in the conquering armies of Revelation 19. Everybody's clothed in white on white horses behind Jesus as he's his, at his second coming. Additionally, they will, Jesus will confess their names before the Father and his angels. This goes to Matthew 10 and Luke 12. Matthew 10, that's where Jesus promises to confess whoever confesses him before his Father. And then Luke 12, he does the same before the angels. And then there's a call to listen. The Philadelphia church, uh, the last two here, then we'll finish up. Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east, being situated strategically for commerce and trade. The city, though, was built on a fault line and suffered a major earthquake in 17 AD. So Rome exempted it from tribute for five years to help rebuild the city. Their wealth was centered on grapes and wine, having Dionysus, the god of wine, as their patron deity. The attributes and titles Jesus mentioned in verse 7 are meant to fortify the church's confidence that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. The Philadelphian church was bombarded by the synagogue of Satan, sowing doubt on the identity and heritage of Jesus. So Jesus calls himself the Holy One and the True One, attributes that were only reserved for Yahweh in the Old Testament. 
Jesus also possesses the king, the key of David. In Isaiah 22, we read that Eliakim, who was the chief servant of King Hezekiah, was given the king of David, meaning he had the exclusive authority to open and shut. It's possible that the true believers were excommunicated from the synagogue of Satan, but Jesus is emphasizing that he alone has the key to open and shut. So just uh, to stay on that synagogue of Satan, this is a reference to what the people would have said, this is the church of Jesus in, in Philadelphia. But Jesus is saying that's a false church. They do not believe that I am God, like we've talked about. So he's calling them the synagogue of Satan. So what might have happened is true believers were kicked out of what everybody else thought the true church was. So they had to go to their little house churches or something. So Jesus is reinforcing them. I am the Messiah of the Old Testament. You are the true church. They are the synagogue of Satan. And guess what? I'm gonna make them come and bow down at your feet so that everybody else will see that you are the true church. That's what's happening here in Philadelphia. Next, Jesus uh, promises protection for the church from the hour of trial coming on the world. While this uh, may have resonated with the church and at the trials they were facing, this is primarily a promise to all believers as the end approaches and its accompanying tribulation. Uh, I I don't know if it's up here, but the Greek word uh, here that's translated keep you from could mean be translated from or out of. The latter translation, out of, finds support from those adhering to a pre-tribulation rapture. believing that God will deliver Christians out of the trial. The from translation supports a mid-tribulation rapture view, believing God will protect Christians from the trials of the tribulation. And just to state, the Assemblies of God, their official stance is a pre-tribulation rapture view, though they do not condemn those in the Assemblies of God that lean toward a mid-tribulation rapture view. They do condemn a post-tribulation rapture view. That is not going to happen. Lastly, Jesus exhorts them to maintain their course, to hold on to what they have and not let their guard down, lest someone steal their crown. The rewards here, the one who conquers, will be a, a pillar in the new temple that speaks of our permanence in the eternal reward in heaven. Next, they will be given three names, the name of my God, the city of my God, and Jesus' new name. This provides Uh, imagery of our adoption into God's family, citizenship into his kingdom, and our identification with Christ and the covering he provides. The last church, Laodicea, uh, verse 14 through 22. Laodicea was also on a fault line in the Lycus Valley and was prone to earthquakes. It was the primary member of a tri-city partnership with Hierapolis and Colossae. Trade routes converged at Laodicea, making it a prosperous trade and banking city. The first designation that Jesus says is the amen. It points to God as the source of truth. He alone validates truth. The second designation, attribution, is faithful and true witness, which further emphasizes Jesus' role as the amen. And the third designation we need to talk about says the beginning of God's creation. That's how it's translated in the English Standard Version. the, they translate the Greek term to beginning, but that's misleading because it could convey that Jesus is a part of the created order. A more fitting or accurate word would be source or origin of creation. 
This is consistent with the testimony of Scripture that we read from John 1, 3 that says all things were made through him and nothing was made that has been made apart from him or without him. Jesus is the origin, the source, the amen. The grievance here, the cold or remember Laodicea is lukewarm, cold or hot. That could have been a reference to their water supply. They didn't have a water supply in and of themselves. Hierapolis had a mineral, hot mineral springs in the north, and then Colossae had cold, pure drinking water in the south. Either way, by the time it reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Spiritually speaking, the church was in the same condition. Neither hot nor cold, they were sitting squarely in the middle of the fence, riding the wave of mediocrity. They would no longer be able to maintain the middle ground, serving both God and mammon or money. To add to their shame, when we compare them to the other churches, they are not suffering internal threats or external threats. Once again, we are reminded, and actually Laodicea had allowed its comfort and wealth and peace to give them a false sense of satisfaction, which produced a malaise. Once again, we are reminded that nothing is hidden from God as he searches the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He sees through the filters of Instagram to the reality of life. Jesus counsels them to buy gold from him that has been refined by fire, the fire of trials and persecution. What this means is if they go hot, if they choose hot from lukewarm, they are going to experience fiery trials, but they are going to be refined by those like refined gold. Secondly, he tells them to buy white garments from him, signifying purity, victory, and righteousness. Third, salve for their spiritual eyes to see. Laodicea was well known for having developed an eye salve uh, in the medical community, community there. Jesus is playing off that to make the point that they need his intervention to remove their blindness. After admonishing them, though, Jesus affirms his love for the church. He makes the case that true love does not neglect, but challenges and encourages loved ones to move in the right direction. He then gives two commands, be zealous and repent. In that order, the Laodicean church had been lulled into apathy. They just didn't care. So before anything else, they needed to wake up from that slumber, to be zealous, then repent, turning back to correct their course. Lastly, we read the oft-recited verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This has often been used for a call or as a call to evangelism, but that's missing the context here, actually. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church, not to the outside world. He's knocking on the door of the church, ready, willing, and waiting to take his position as the head of the church to lead this revitalization movement. The warning here comes from the result of staying lukewarm. Simply, Jesus will spit them out if they stay lukewarm and cast them aside. The reward for the conqueror is authority, sitting with Jesus on his throne, just as he did on his father's throne after conquering death and the grave. He now turns to us, and we will rule and reign with him, first in the millennium and then for eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your word. As we continue to journey through end-time events and through Revelation, let us keep this in mind that this book, this letter was written to specific churches at a specific time that were enduring specific challenges, even though it has application to us uh, 2,000 years later. 
Let us keep that in mind and try to understand our best what the original intent from your mouth to those people were and how they understood that. And secondly, how can we apply that message to ourselves to prepare ourselves for end-time events, for challenges, for potential persecution that may come our way so that we can come out of it as refined gold. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a five-star rating and review. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to Pastor's Prophecy Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear more from Greater Life Church, including our Sunday morning services, go to our website, greaterlife.church.